this is the last personal soliloquy that I'm going to do for a little bit. Um, I just is, was having a really inspired moment. It's been a strange, inspired day. And so I think when good things are happening, it's an adjustment. It's, it's actually a big change. And so I, I urge the audience to, to kind of go with me on this because sometimes people have a tough time letting a good thing happen. And um, maybe I'm not the only one who's experienced this. So I have this book called The Mountain Is You. I, I got it when I knew I was moving back to Austin because Austin is a place where I didn't think very hard about um, good things happening or being in the flow of what I want or doing what I put my mind to um, and making it happen. It's just, it's just the kind of place where people are like, yeah, you want to do that? Go. And um, same thing with speech. You know, you want to say that? Good. Go, go say it. And no one's really kind of getting in the way. So the obstructionism and the uh, just where people sit on you and don't let you talk and uh, sit on your whole life demo. If your life was a demo and they sat on it and didn't let you talk, um, that is what my life was like in, I would say, Washington State. There's a whole lot of people not talking, you know, obeying and reading from a script that they didn't write, uh, you know, you know, waiting to, to screw up and step in the wrong cow pie, uh, you know, over, you know, and, and no one's in charge. Everyone's not in charge. That's what the whole uh, feeling or the sensation of uh, self-censorship, censorship, being choked in your speech, not being able to, you know, think because you're, you know, you're going to get struggle shame to death. So all those, all the, all the breaks are kind of off right now. So I'm, I'm coasting. I'm, I'm rolling. Austin is, is freer. And I realize how different things really are here. Um, because I'm weird now. <laughs> People are like, this is normal. And you're the weirdo who's like, I just came from a quasi-communist regime that actually was the United States, but it didn't feel like the United States. And I'm not going to dwell on that. Here, I'm going to go to this book. Okay, this is uh, The Mountain is You, Transforming Self-Sabotage into Self-Mastery by Brianna Weist. And so I'm going to turn to this chapter here get there and you know it's it's a key chapter called building emotional intelligence and so i'm just gonna skip to the jump to the cut your brain is designed to resist what you really want so something interesting happens in the human brain when we get what we want we imagine what goals we want to achieve. We often do so with the expectation that they will elevate our quality of life in some tangible way. And once we have arrived at that place, we will be able to coast. 
post has been let go, relax in life, let things be. And that is not what happens. When we get something we really want, we just start to want more. New research in the nature of chemical dopamine, which is previously believed to be the driving force behind desire and lust and acquisition, proves that it is more complex than previously thought. In The Molecule of More, Daniel Z. Lieberman explains that experts who studied the hormone found that when an individual was introduced to something they highly desired, the dopamine surge would diminish after acquisition. Dopamine, as it turns out, is not the chemical that gives you pleasure. It's the chemical that gives you the pleasure of wanting more. Huh. So the big, huge goal that you're working towards, you'll get there, and then there will be another mountain to scale. So this is one of the many reasons we deeply sabotage what we truly want. We know instinctively that arriving won't really give us the ability to abstain from life. It will only make us hungrier for more. And sometimes we don't feel up to that challenge. So while we're on the way, a toxic cocktail of neurological biases start piling up one on another. And we start to resent, to judge, even vilify the object of our greatest desire. When that happens, we start to chase what we really want. We resist doing the work that it takes to actually get it because we're so afraid of not having it. Any brush with failure makes us rescind our effort and tends up kind of choke. So when we go so long not having what we really want, we create subconscious associations between having it and being bad because we have judged others for having it. When we get it, we fear losing it so badly that we push it away from ourselves so as not to have to withstand the pain. So we are so deeply enmeshed in the mental state of wanting, we can't shift to the state of having. So first, when we want something really, really badly, it is often because we have unrealistic expectations associated with it. We imagine that it will change our lives in some formidable way, and often that's not the case. So when we are relying on some goal or life change to save us in some unrealistic way, any incident of failure will trigger us to stop trying. For example, if we're absolutely certain that a romantic partner will help us stop being depressed, we're going to be extremely sensitive to rejection because it makes us feel as though we will never get over depression. Of course, the obvious issue here is that dating is a process of trial and error. You have to fail first to succeed. Then, for all the time we spend not having the thing that we want, such as a romantic relationship, our brains have to justify and validate our stance in life as a form of self-protection. This is why we unconsciously vilify those who do have what we want. Instead of being inspired by their success, we doubt them. We become a skeptic about relationships. Being so jealous of others' happiness, we assume that they must be faking it, or that love isn't real, or that they'll split eventually anyway. 
um, if we hold tightly to these beliefs for long enough, guess what will happen? When we finally get that relationship we really want, of course, we're going to doubt it and assume it will also fail. So this is what's going on when people push others away or give up on their big dreams the moment something challenging comes up. When we're so scared that we are going to lose something, we tend to push it away from ourselves first as a mean means of self-preservation. So let's say that you work through the limiting beliefs that you're creating this much resistance in your life and you do eventually allow yourself to build and have the thing you really, really want. Next, you'll be last and most trying challenge, which is the shift from survival mode to thriving mode. If you have spent the majority of your life in a state in which you're just getting by, you're not going to know how to adapt to a life in which you are relaxed and enjoying it. Um, you're going to resist it. You're going to feel guilty, perhaps overspend, or disregard some of your responsibilities. You are in your head balancing out the years of difficulty with the years of complete relaxation. However, this is not how it works. So when we are so deeply enmeshed in the feeling of wanting it becomes extremely hard to adjust to this, the experience of having. This is because any change, no matter how positive, is uncomfortable until it is also familiar. So it is deep, deeply difficult, sorry, difficult to acknowledge the ways in which we are so deeply inclined to self-validate. So we end up standing in our own way out of pride. So it is even more difficult to acknowledge that very often the things we envy and others are fragments of our deepest ones we won't allow ourselves to have. Yes, your brain is predisposed to want greater things and more of them. But by understanding its processes and tendencies, you can override the programming and start governing your own life, which is really important. Self-governance is the key to personal freedom. And when someone else is in charge, that means they get to determine when you do things. And if you're a big adult person, it's just not appropriate. So um, your body is governed by a homeostatic impulse. Your brain is built to reinforce and regulate your life. Your subconscious mind has something called a homeostatic impulse, which regulates functions like body temperature, heartbeat, and breathing. Brian Tracy explained it like this, though your autonomic nervous system, your homeostatic impulse maintains a balance among the hundreds of chemicals in your billions of cells so that your entire physical machine functions in complete harmony most of the time. But what many people don't realize is that just as your brain is built to regulate your physical self, it tries to regulate your mental self. Your mind is constantly filtering and bringing your attention, information, and stimuli that affirm your pre-existing beliefs. This is known in psychology as confirmation bias, as well as presenting you with repeated thoughts and impulses that mimic and mirror what you've done in the past. So your subconscious mind is the gatekeeper of your comfort zone. 
is also the realm in which you can either habituate yourself to expect and routinely seek the actions that would build and reinforce the greatest success, happiness, wholeness, or healing of your life. What this teaches us is that when we're going through a healing or changing process in our lives, we have to allow our bodies to adjust to their new sense of normalcy. This is why all change, no matter how good, will be uncomfortable until it's also familiar. This is why we can get stuck in self-destructive habits and cycles. Even though they feel good, it does not mean they're good for us. So we have to use our minds to practice discernment. We have to use our supreme intelligence to decide where we want to go, who we want to be, and then we have to allow our bodies to adjust over time. We cannot live being governed by how we feel. Our emotions are temporary, and they're not always reflective of reality. That's a really important statement to make because people in this culture are getting, they've been put in a can for two years and told what to think, told what to believe, and told consequently what to feel, how to be guilty about which things, and they're not really, they're like not doing it themselves anymore. So kind of stepping back and saying, we're going to let, we're going to let ourselves do what we need to do and not necessarily obey all feelings because they're misinforming us. So we have to know what we think and separate that from what we feel, but know what we feel, etc. Okay. So you don't change in breakthroughs. You change in micro shifts. Okay, let's say you're stuck in life. It's probably because you're waiting for that big bang, the breakthrough moment in which all of your fears dissolve and you're overcome with clarity. The work that needs to happen happens effortlessly and your personal transformation rips you from complacency and you wake up into an entirely new existence. That moment will never come. So breakthroughs do not happen spontaneously. They are tipping points. Revelations occur when ideas that were shifting, or sorry, sitting in the margins of your mind finally get enough attention to dominate your thoughts. These are the clicking moments. The moments when you finally understand advice you've heard your entire life. The moments when you've habituated yourself to a pattern of behavior for long enough, it becomes instinctive. A mind-blowing singular breakthrough is not what changes your life. A micro-shift is. Breakthroughs are what happen after hours, days, and years of the same mundane, monotonous work. But a mind-blowing, singular breakthrough is not what changes your life. A micro-shift is. As writer and media strategist Ryan Holiday has noted, epiphanies are not life-altering. It is not radical moments of action that give us long-lasting, permeating change. It's the restructuring of our habits. The idea is what science philosopher Thomas Kuhn dubbed a paradigm shift. Kuhn suggested we don't change our lives in flashes of brilliance, but through a slow process in which assumptions unravel and require new explanations. It is in these periods of flux that micro shifts happen and breakthrough level change begins to take shape. Think of micro shifts as tiny increments of change in your day-to-day life. 
a micro shift is changing what you eat for one part of one meal just that one time. Then it's doing that a second time and a third. Before you even realize what's happening, you've adopted a pattern of behavior. What you do every single day accounts for the quality of your life and the degree of your success. It's not whether you feel like putting in the work, but whether or not you do it regardless. This is because the outcomes of life are not governed by passion, they're governed by principle. You may not think what you did this morning was important, but it was. You may not think that the little things that add up, but they do. Consider the age-old brain teaser. What would you have rather have? One million in hand today or a penny that doubles in value every day for the next month? The one million right now sounds great, but after a 31-day month, that one penny would be worth over $10 million. Making big sweeping changes is not difficult because we are flawed and competent beings. Because we are not meant to live outside of our comfort zones. If you want to change your life, you need to make tiny, nearly indetectable, every hour voices are habituated. Then you'll just continue to do them. If you want to spend less time on your phone, deny yourself the chance to check it one time a day. If you want to eat healthier, drink half a cup of water today. If you want to sleep more, go to bed 10 minutes earlier tonight than you did last night. If you want to exercise more, do it now for just 10 minutes. If you want to read, read one page. If you want to meditate, do it for 30 seconds then keep doing those things. Do them every single day. You'll get used to not checking your phone. You'll want more water and you'll drink more water. You'll run for 10 minutes and you won't feel like you have to stop. So you won't. Then you'll read one page, grow interested and read, read another. At our most instinctive physiological level, change translates to something dangerous and potentially life-threatening. No wonder we build our own cages and stay in them. Even though there's, there's no lock on the door, okay? Trying to shock yourself into a new life isn't going to work, and that's why it hasn't. You don't need to wait until you you feel like changing to start changing. You just, all you need is to make one micro shift at a time and then let the energy and momentum build. See, this is better than... than you know, thinking you have to make a radical breakout, I, you know, statement or, or, you know, drop 50% of your Twitter followers or something, something ridiculous like that. You can just say, I don't agree with this concept. I choose to not believe it right now and I will reassess the rest of it later. So I think I've talked for a while now. Um, Thank you for listening. It has been an unsanctioned citizen podcast because sanctioned citizens are are kind of caged chickens. But when you open the door, sometimes they don't run out. And that's that's what happens sometimes. So thank you for listening. I hope this this helps your life in some great way. It's certainly helping me. Then the name of the book is The Mountain Is You. And it's transforming self-sabotage into self-mastery. Thank you for listening.